0: If you've been wondering who Landon De Pasquale is, and you've wanted to hear maybe what he sounds like because he's, uh, his posts are as long as mine on our on our website, then today's episode is for you. I'm John Manos, president of the Bellarmine Forum, and welcome to another, our third installment of the Bellarmine Forum podcast, uh, where we are launching and hopefully giving you an opportunity to binge listen to the the first several episodes that we're putting back up after relaunching our podcast after a three-year hiatus. Suppose we start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
1: Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death.
0: Amen. Amen. Our Lady of the Rosary, Pray for us.
1: Pray for us.
0: Well, as you got to tell from the voice there, that Landon's already on with me. Landon, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate being here. Uh, well, you know, it's funny how I, I'm already going to pick on you because being here. I wish we were sitting in the same room. Uh, you know, being on the phone is a, it makes it tough. But I, I do want, uh, hopefully, it to feel like we're all together as we as, as yeah. we go through the podcast. So.
1: Yeah, we're we're cultivating that uh, sitting around the fire, drinking a couple of bourbons and just having a good night and talking about some stuff about the Catholic faith.
0: Exactly. Um, which, of course, was the difficulty. We were on the phone earlier because you and I can go topic to topic to topic to topic to topic. And that sounds good. Let's talk about that. That sounds good. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, I think you've killed my phone more than anyone I've ever spoken to on the phone with. So <laughs> That's, well, I'm half Greek. <laughs> I
0: mean, that's how it works. So, speaking of
1: uh, uh,
0: topics, again, I just want to run for audience, a quick rundown. So you, you grew up, you're not Catholic, you're, what did you grow up as?
1: So I grew up as the lowest church Protestant that you can imagine. Um, I. I grew up as a very low church evangelical. Um, My grandparents on both sides of my family were Nazarene missionaries, and they were Nazarene missionaries to places like Greece and Mexico and Nicaragua, which some of our listeners might perk up and say, hey, hasn't the faith been in those places for quite a few years? And yeah. you should say, yes, the faith has been in those places for quite a few years. For well, the pinnacle, um, of, you know, pardon me for a minute, but the pinnacle of Byzantium
0: <laughs> and, you know, all of uh, human society was developed in one of those places, at least. But you
1: know. So my grandparents uh, on both my mom and my father's side were missionaries to these various places in order to save people and bring them into the the true faith. And no, so when well, you say true faith there. You mean you mean from the Nazarene perspective? Yeah, yes, yes, of okay. course. Um, which means which, which yeah which, which means you can stand up before your congregation and say, "I was saved in 1964, and I was sanctified in 1973, and I have not committed a sin since." Wow. You know, there's a there's a um, a certain assurance in those in those circles that you are truly saved and haven't haven't committed any sins since then. Um, But as a result, I grew up with no liturgy, no concept of theology. It was about the lowest of the low that you can imagine from Protestantism. But you had a Bible. I had a Bible. Um, I had some. And and to be fair, I had some Bible study leaders who were good, well-meaning guys who Actually, without realizing it, helped me on this on this process becoming Catholic. Really, kind of set me up to head in this direction. So wait, I gotta ask this before the time passes.
0: A missionary in Greece. What were they doing, going door to door with the watchtower? I mean, I just think about. Uh, I actually, I I I
1: can't I can't give you particulars because I don't know them. But I can tell you that my my father was born in Greece on a military base. Okay. Um, my grandparents were missionaries there and they were missionaries down in Haiti on my father's side and on my mom's side, they were missionaries in Nicaragua, Mexico city, places like that. And it was really about what they thought bringing the gospel to, to the people, to, to the folks who hadn't heard it yet. Unfortunately, they just hadn't realized that the gospel had been there for a, a few years. I wonder how many little widows
0: in, in their black garb with carrying icons, like ran them out of their villages.
1: So I can tell you one story about Nicaragua, which is that when my grandfather first went into the city that he was in, he was uh, outside of Managua, Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Um, He comes into uh, the little village that he's in, and they sit at their home, and they start to kind of get settled. The the local Catholic priest comes through the center of the city on a megaphone, um, declaring to the people that... Um, the devil's agents have come into the city and the, they need to have no part with them. And wow. I remember growing up hearing that story and being like, oh, how could they? And I, I have to say, I might be a little sympathetic to that priest now, but <laughs> I oh, <have>
0: <laughs> So let's fast forward. You go to Wheaton.
1: Yeah, so my stepfather is a professor at Wheaton. He is a Uh, A professor in the Missions and Agricultural Studies Department there, he Mm -hmm. teaches career missionaries how to be better missionaries from a Protestant perspective, obviously. Um, I moved into the area in high school, and so it kind of made sense for me to stick in the area and uh, go to Wheaton College for my college. And while I was there, I studied philosophy, Uh, and that's what kind of started the slow slide, you could say, into Catholicism. Yeah, when we talk
0: about philosophy, we're talking about ancient Greeks are now missionizing you.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> it was really interesting because in, in Wheaton, it, 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 they really had a care for ancient and medieval philosophy. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, even as a Catholic, Wheaton has one of the better philosophy departments in the United States because they really focused on those ancient and medieval philosophers and really gave them their due. Even yeah. though they maybe we'd say don't have the fullness of truth, they could, they really cared about and understood that those philosophers had some important things to say. And what I remember happening is I would start asking questions as I was thinking about and learning about these sorts of things that bared on my Protestantism at that point. And they said, Oh, those aren't those aren't philosophical questions, those are theological questions. Go ask the Bible theology department, which was a very nice way of saying we don't want to answer these questions because we don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And so what ended up happening was I studied philosophy there, I started having questions about uh Protestantism and Catholicism. I started looking at Catholicism and actually through EWTN I started Understanding more about Catholicism, and I started to ask the fundamental question, and for me, this is the question that I think every convert ends up going through, which is, is Catholicism reasonable? I had always been brought up to believe that Catholicism was kind of like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. They were this kind of crazy cult that believed all these goofy things that no reasonable person could ever believe. Sure, and, and we worship statues I, too, right? I, I mean, all the crazy stuff. I mean, you should think of the, the crazy things that Catholics do. <laughs> but wow. as as I started studying Catholicism, I realized that it was all really reasonable, and it all. I made heard those sense. Catholics it, hoard bones. <laughs> oh, you should hear the the things that they, <laughs> that they used to do back in the Middle Ages. I mean, they thought that you could pay money and you could get out of you could get out of hell that you could save people who had already been condemned, all sorts of goofy stuff. Wait, wait, wait. wait, You can't do that? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, look. But what ended up happening was, as a result of this, I I came to the conclusion that Catholicism was reasonable, but it wasn't for me. And as soon as I made that conclusion, Mm -hmm. not realizing it, I was on the slide into the Tiber. I had made the move into Catholicism because as soon as you say Catholicism is reasonable, but it's not what I believe, it requires the next step, which is, well, if Catholicism is reasonable, why do I believe my reasonable beliefs over these reasonable beliefs? What Mm -hmm. makes my beliefs any better than these? And so I started asking questions. And Wheaton prides itself as... It, call, it sometimes calls itself the Harvard of the Midwest, and yeah. I'm not sure that that's a fair description of it. But they see themselves as the pinnacle of evangelical thought, the pinnacle of evangelical learning. And so I started asking questions: Hey, how does how do evangelicals think about things like the the continuity between the apostles and the church today? How do how do evangelicals think about philosophy? How do they think about all of these things that Catholics take for granted. And I got answers that were frankly disappointing. (laughs) I got answers that didn't give me the sort of reasonable conclusion that I thought I would get. I got answers like, Oh, well, if you want apostolic succession, really apostolic succession is just anyone who continues to teach the gospel. And having read some of the early fathers like Ignatius and St. Clement, I said, well, no, that's definitely not what they were talking about when they talked about apostolic succession. But see, these. And so, wait, 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 wait. When
0: you say you were reading these church fathers, was this stuff that was like right there at Wheaton? It was like just to study alongside of everything else?
1: No. So, when it came to the church fathers, this was something that I just kind of dove into because I started studying these medievals like Aquinas and Anselm, Boethius, okay. who I'm particularly attached to.
0: No, wait, wait, wait. And now, I want to bring up something, because this is fascinating to me. You know, I I went to Catholic schools, and, and for all the other trouble, like the, you know, object uh, or outcome-based things and stuff, and all the Marxist programming they were trying in Catholic schools when I went, one thing was for sure, in, in Cincinnati in my elementary school, which was half German, half Irish, and then one Greek, me. <laughs> um, I, there was also an, there was also an Asian, uh, Asian kid too, but he wasn't in my section. We had like different sections. Um, and so within my own section, it was like Germans, Irish, and me. And, and I always had to laugh because later in the years, there was a Mormon kid that came and we all thought he was from Mars.
1: Yeah. Well he might have been according to their theologies.
0: Well as I was gonna say then I got older and I learned more about Mormon beliefs and I thought well maybe he really was so <laughs> if Mars was calls Kolob may, you know, then we've got what we need. But I remember there was a kid down the street that was Baptist and and, and they listened to country music, which was different than what I listened to in my house. So that was kind of at the end of my day, like like that separated me from them. Like Baptists listen that kind of music and Catholics have hymns and, and classical, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, Polish hymns and stuff. They, it was just different. And it wasn't until I was older I was exp- – So I never really saw – as a kid, we would we, – uh, me and a, a friend from uh, from grade school, we would go out on these quests. And there was a, a Methodist, United Methodist Church that was in our neighborhood. And the coolest thing in the world, they had a, um, a Chinese groundskeeper named Chong. And so that was about the time the Star Trek was out with uh, Search for Spock, and so we used to go on a Search for Chong, and it, we would go around this church waiting for him to catch us because he would start yelling at us in Chinese and tell us to go away. You people go.
1: Did you, you pick go, up any Chinese from these from these adventures?
0: Well, <laughs> what I that was the first time I'd been in a Protestant church, and I actually liked it that they had padded seats. Mm-hmm. They had like these nice velvet velour kind of Oh, yeah, floor. totally. And I thought, wow. And I had to tease my parents. I said, I want to go there because they have comfortable seating. <laughs> so that was the only time. But when I got older, like down here in, in Birmingham, the first time around at EWTN, uh, Samford University's down here. And they have this chapel, yeah. uh, you know, Southern Baptist, everything. I'd never seen like a Protestant church that had images in it. And they have images in their chapel there. But it blew my mind to see... I think Socrates is one of the pictures. Then you see uh, Augustine. Okay. And it, it, then you see Martin Luther. You know, yeah. they're, like, all held up together. And I'm like, which one of these doesn't belong? <laughs> or, like, behind, I guess, where their sanctuary is. It's kind of weird to me. They have, like, a sanctuary that you would think, well, it looks like a modern American church. I mean, I'm church, Catholic church, because it, it, looks, sure. it just looks like a Catholic church to head the the uh, the the high altar gutted, but in right. that in that space back there, they have like scenes of our Lord's life. You see the Annunciation, you see the Nativity, and I'm like, wow, these are like rosary meditations. And then you go through, and you see the Visitation. Then the next one is Martin Luther nailing the theses to the door. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, that's really. Why didn't they see that? That stands out. That's different than so- the rest of this.
1: You know, I have to give Wheaton this credit. The professors that I studied under while I was there, Mm -hmm. they all were very critical of this view that um, is popular in certain Protestant circles where the church was pure in the very first, say, 100 years or so and then fell into apostasy immediately. And there was this secret... Baptist church that continued throughout until Martin Luther came to kind of, oh, wait, um, wait, this is pull the, them out of Babylon, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is
0: the whole. Uh, well, don't you see
1: an extension of this with like the Seventh Day Adventists and that whole, yeah, like, Jehovah's and, so, and the others? Right, they they all kind of pull from this similar mythology. But I have to give Wheaton its credit. Every single professor that I had was very critical of this view and and really tried to stress that if you were going to be Christian, you had to engage with these earlier Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, What ended up happening in my case was I engaged in those earlier Christians like Pseudo Dionysius and people like that and ended up becoming Catholic because I don't think at the end of the day you can study those sorts of figures and end up Protestant. I I just don't, I don't see any way of that happening. Yeah, but where's the connection
0: here? So you're becoming convinced in your mind, but like, when did you go to a Mass, and what did you think when you went to the Mass for the first time?
1: So I, I had been to Mass. I, I, I have one memory of going to Mass before this as a as a child, because I grew up Protestant. I, I really only have one memory of Mass, and it was when I lived in Helena, Montana. Um, we went to Mass in the cathedral there in Helena, and mm-hmm. the only thing that I took away from that as a child was that I wasn't a huge fan of all the incense that they were using at the time. It seemed like it was kind of choking and unnecessary. Oh, wow. Um, but as I as I grew up and went to, to Wheaton, um, I would sneak away to – so I was going to an Anglican church at the time. I had realized that evangelicalism wasn't for me. And so I was going to a low-church Anglican church that had some of the Catholic trappings but wasn't really – Anglican or particularly Catholic in any in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And as I started going to this place, it started bringing up some of these questions. And so I started going to Mass at what would be a typical suburban Catholic parish. Um, and in some ways, that was a, a really good bridge for me because I didn't know anything about Catholicism, and I didn't have any experience in Catholicism, and it was in some ways familiar and in some ways very alien to me, but it allowed me a space to kind of engage Catholicism in a way that i hadn't before. Um, now, were you just taking places because you felt like you had to go to church on Sunday? So I, I would typically go to my Anglican church on Sunday, but as I started questioning um, it was always kind of impressed into me as, as a child that you always went to church. And so I would go to these Uh, Catholic churches just to kind of see what it was like. Um, And this is going to sound really weird, but this was something that was kind of the norm for how I grew up is that we weren't Catholic, but we would have family members or friends that would go to midnight mass on, Uh. uh, on Christmas because that's just what you did. And there was no sort of Catholic connection there, but it was just, oh, this is an interesting kind of cool thing that people do. Huh. And so, it, I guess it kind of it kind of started that way, um, but what I quickly found was that there was actually a a real difference between the Catholic churches that I was going to, even the typical suburban Catholic churches I was going to, and the Anglican church I was attending at that point.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And that's even uh, to you know it's funny because that's what I was thinking when when you said you were going to an Anglican one. I was like, well, I wonder if the pastor was even male. Um, cause he they, was, they th- um, and
1: he was very committed to a male only priesthood, but okay. here was the problem is he had women deacons who were not committed to this same belief, right? And he had other priests who were not committed to that same belief. And as I was going to this, uh, Anglican church, it was right as the Episcopal church in, in the United States was starting to blow up. Um, This was one of the churches in the Chicagoland area that had separated from the Episcopal church early, but this was when it had started to really come to a head, and they had started to find their identity in African Anglican prelates. They thought that they could kind of get their connection to Anglicanism through these African prelates, and I remember really starkly there was a a Sunday where one of the um, Anglican African Uh, bishops or cardinals, whatever whatever he was. I think they called them primates at that point. Mm -hmm. He had come to this service, and he was talking about how they affirm all of the teachings of the first four ecumenical councils. Hmm. And it struck me really hard. It kind of hit me right in the chest, so to speak, because I had read the first four ecumenical councils. I was really kind of saturated by that at that point. And I knew that one one of the requirements of Nicaea was that bishops don't get to go to other dioceses and just grab parishioners and steal them over, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what was going on in Anglicanism in the time because it was dissolving. It, it, it was completely imploding because there was no orthodoxy at that point. And that was the point where I, I think... I started to realize that this Anglican thing wasn't going to be the end result. I I thought that I could kind of stick it out there and be half Catholic and half Protestant. And maybe there was going to be some point where the two would come together and we would all be together. And then I wouldn't have to really convert and everything would be okay. Um, because I kind of saw Catholicism as some far off end. Like, oh, I'll become Catholic when I do X, Y and Z. I'll become Catholic at some future point, but I don't I don't really need to do that now. Yeah. And I think that was the first point where I realized, yeah, Catholicism is not some future end point for me. It's it's something that's right now. Well, why would you think you, I mean, you know, pardon, uh, had you been baptized by then? So I was baptized at 19 by my grandfather. Okay. Um, and so I had been baptized at that point, but even then I didn't really realize or recognize that it was a sacramental thing that brought me into the church. At that point, I was still thinking of it in very practical terms of, from a process standpoint, this is something that you do that, to show that you're a Christian. You're letting the community know that you are yeah. that you really believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so at that point, I had been baptized, but I, I still didn't understand what that meant. I didn't comprehend fully what that meant for me.
0: Well, let me go back to this for a second. Because this this idea of oh no you got to choose for yourself it's so foreign to me that I always got to ask about it when people grew up in it yeah did you think or was there any idea that that baptism was changed I don't know about what kind of baptism you see. Was it a Trinitarian formula? Would it be a valid baptism?
1: Do you know? Yeah, it, it was it was a it was definitely a, a valid baptism with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: But did you did was there any idea apart from you know, I always hear this and I see it among especially whether since I've moved to the South, I know what you're talking about when it's treated like this is a way of affirming to the community that you're one of us. But there's never any talk about that actually changing your soul or changing you or reconfiguring you. I mean yeah, were you no, given an idea of
1: that or No, that's completely foreign to at least my my experience growing up Protestant. That was that was something that just could never fit into Protestantism. See, where you always we
0: here's I guess the
1: you know, I I can be crude with you.
0: Uh, in a way that I can't be easily or not without uh, severe tact with uh, talking to people down here. But, I mean, is that kind of way you view it? Like, okay, I, I guess I finally decided that these people are okay for me and I'll do this. It was not like a so, decision between you and God other than to just say, I want to be in this church.
1: I'll, I'll make it one worse. Okay. We had put off my baptism because we hadn't found a church that we really felt was we were a part of okay and we really felt like we could do that in it was more about being a part of that church rather than baptism doing something to us uh, okay right it was completely about the community and so it was okay well i'm uh, there was a point earlier in my life where i was ready quote unquote <laughs> to be baptized as a protestant but we weren't at a church at that point that we really felt that we were connected, and we could really be baptized. And so it wasn't until I was nineteen, and my grandfather came down to do that. And even then, it was a kind of tenuous communal connection. Well, I mean, would it ever be like to talk
0: like, "Yeah, uh, you've been chosen"? I guess that's the crude part I was going to say. Is did you feel like you were
1: chosen, even though you hadn't been baptized? So we didn't grow up Calvinist at all. Um, And so that chosen language wasn't a part of it. In fact, we kind of railed against that. Even as a Protestant, I I really railed against that. So it definitely wasn't that Protestant or that Calvinist language of chosen. Mm. It was more of an idea that um, we were making that decision or that commitment. But the reality was baptism had nothing to do with whether we were Christian or not. Mm. We thought of ourselves as Christians I thought of myself as a Christian up and before I was baptized and I was taught that my baptism had nothing to do with whether I was a Christian or not. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. See that's it was kind of, I just guess I picked do. the words poorly because of the said chosen, yeah, but that's kind of the idea I was getting
1: at. No, it was just something to do at some point. Yeah. It was something I had to do at some point, but it, it had nothing to do with whether I was a Christian or not.
0: It's kinda of like washing your socks. You gotta get
1: to it sooner or later, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was told that I had to do it and we need to do it in a community that we felt comfortable with, mm. but other than that, it, it wasn't really stressed. It wasn't really important, mm. which is why I waited until I was 19 to do it.
0: <laughs> so let's, let's fast forward. Okay. So you, you go through this stuff. I got to get to my favorite thing. How did you encounter the blessed mother? And, and, and like, when did you become at ease with that idea? Cause I'm sure that's something that was like you had to wrestle with
1: yeah so I mean there was so uh, I guess I kind of think of my conversion in the same way that Saint. Augustine kind of talks about conversion. There was a conversion of the will and then there was a conversion of the intellect. And my mm-hmm. conversion of the intellect definitely came first. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a point where I thought, yeah, I could be Catholic. I believe all these things. I accept all of these truths, but I'm not really ready to do that yet. That's that's for down the road. That's for some other time. I'm I'm really not there yet. Yeah. Um, and it, it was some Catholic friends who kind of persisted and harassed me. <laughs> it might me might be a web, another way of communicating it. But it, it was the recognition that I I had made the intellectual leap, but I hadn't made the conversion of the will yet. Yeah. And, and I have to be honest. Um, Everyone loves these conversion stories where some amazing thing happens and you have your epiphany and you realize, oh, I need to become Catholic. Well, wait, that, wait. That w- I've n- you've never heard my theory on this. Okay. I,
0: I think, you know, uh, we're going to be putting up the conversion story of Rottisbon, uh after talking with uh, – with, so by the time people are listening to this, it's going to be on the website. I never really paid enough attention – uh to, to Maximilian Cole we had a number of outlines for books, and he always brings up this conversion story. Yeah. His conversion story, maybe I'll, I don't want to get into uh, signal graces that I may, have, may or may not have experienced or other things. But when I read what happened to him to convert him, it reminded me or made me feel about similar to the way I felt when I did my Marian consecration and renewed it at uh, our, our Lady of the Miraculous Metal Shrine out in the middle of the country in a cornfield. Um, but I think conversions fall into, just my general experience, and you know what, that's the best thing about being Catholic. I don't have to be hyper accurate about it, but my right. like, back of the envelope kind of like way that I know about these conversions, 80% our Lord's like, can like pull people to the church and it's not with – it doesn't take a lot of drama. Yeah. But there's like this other 20% that fall into two groups. There's kind of like the Rottis Bond where there's like some some great thing happens and it's like – let me put it this way. They don't have to get the St. Paul treatment. Right. Some people like yours truly, when uh, our Lord wanted him to be on the straight and narrow, I guess we call that a reversion story, we get the St. Paul treatment. yeah. And I I think it's because our heads are thicker than everybody else's, and he's just got to, you know, he's like, this one's never going to get it unless I beat him. Yeah. But people, you know, I, I guess I'm leaving one other category out. There's a number of converts I heard about where something in the church, and it's usually, it could be a saint or or something peculiar, and they spend years, in some cases like decades, like chasing this concept, and eventually there's like some manifestation at the end, and they they go back through their life, and they realize our Lord had been leading them into the church the whole time. That's like, I don't know, one in a thousand people get something like that. But I think most, the bulk of them, when you were saying, I don't have one of these dramatic conversion stories, it is dramatic. On the human level, there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, we're not talking about you just decided you're going to wear like a purple sport coat from now on. Right, this is a big, right. this is a big change. Right. There's a lot of
1: drama here,
0: but it's yeah. very ordinary. It doesn't make a, it doesn't make the novella that everybody likes to hear.
1: Yeah, and kind of to your point, it's it's a horrible story, and I think it disappoints people when I tell them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't uh, think it's horrible well, because be. here you are. You're energetic about the faith. You're happy about the faith. You want to be around, and not only that, you've been brought to an understanding of of the faith that you wouldn't have been. You've been. I mean, when, it's funny because that's why when we were first talking and you said that your grandfather was going to bring these Greeks to the true faith, here it is. You found it. Yeah, completely separate from
1: anything that had happened.
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, there might not have been a lot of drama in this world over it, but there was a lot in the next.
1: Yeah, and uh, so I have to say, I I will credit my friends at this point because at this point in my life, I was starting to talk about what I believe, Uh which is a really dangerous thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very dangerous thing to talk about what you believe because all of my friends, including professors that I had, came to me and said, you sound like you're becoming Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I said the same thing to all of them. Oh, no, I'm not becoming Catholic. I'm not going to be Catholic. I can appreciate their stuff, but Catholicism is not for me. That's that's. It's an interesting idea, and I can see how they believe it, but that's certainly not for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be completely honest. My horribly boring, banal conversion story. One morning, I woke up. I'm sitting in bed, and I said, huh, I think I might be Catholic. <laughs> and I know that that's, that's the most anticlimactic story that you could tell, but that's, that's what happened. I woke up one morning and said, I think I need to be Catholic. And at that point, it was just a matter of when. And it was the still kind of working out some of the Protestant attachments that I had. But it was a slow working towards, I need to join this. I need to join the Catholic Church, the the true church. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was I was convinced of this just after the enrollment period for RCIA had closed, which means I had to wait another year. And so I spent some time continuing in my Anglican church um, because I felt some sort of obligation to stay there. Teaching, even though I didn't believe what was going on. Um, he, I was a. Wait, wait. He, I was can, a, I, can
0: I just vent for a second? Yeah. What you just said, I just don't understand. I mean, God, okay. I get it. You got administrative difficulties, big parishes, stuff like that, and it needs to be organized. But I got a problem with, oh, I'm sorry, you missed enrollment and you're going to have to wait till next year. <laughs> Yeah, I I got a real problem with that. Like, What's wrong with these people? Do they not believe that there's something?
1: I mean... So all I can say is when I ran my RCIA program, Mm -hmm. I never turned anyone away. Oh, that's good. Anyone who wanted to convert... Because of my own experience, I felt the obligation to make sure that they got through. In whatever method that looked like or whatever means that looked like, I made sure I did my due diligence to make sure that they learned and understood the faith. Mm -hmm. But... I, it's it's the well. The sort, I, you're begging I me. You're begging the, me to bring up these
0: anecdotes about RCIA that I've heard from around the country. Well, no, no. <laughs> let's
1: not let's not get into that. No. Um, but but w- what I'll say is, I, I had missed the enrollment point. I was still in, in this Anglican church, and I was still, um, to to coin a phrase from the Anglicans, a Eucharistic minister. Mm. And so every Sunday, I would put on my white alb and I would hand bread two people and I, no, wait, wait, I finally wait, wait, came to wait, the Wait,
0: when you can say white, Ab, did you have one of those little rope uh,
1: belts? Oh yeah, no, no. We did you look like really a, like white. a little druid going out there? I, it always looks like druids um, to me. So I, I will say this, I definitely got comments from friends where they said, oh, I can see why you don't wear white. So I, that's all <laughs> I can, that's, all, that's the only thing I can I can comment on that. But, but what happened was I came to a point where I said, you know what? I can't hand this bread to people. Um, so the, the the way the Anglicans distribute communion, at least the church I was at, um, there's no way of saying what all Anglicans do, but I can say the church I was at, I would hand a piece of bread to someone, which was a loaf of bread that I had torn off from a bigger loaf. Mm. And I would say, um, body of Christ, bread of heaven. Um, which was a way of kind of skirting the fact that some people believed that it was the body of Christ and some people believed that it was consubstantially the body of Christ and some people believed it was merely a symbol. Mm. But I came to the point where I said, I I can't do this in good conscience anymore. I can't be a part of this. And so I stopped going to my Anglican church on Sunday mornings and started going exclusively to the local Catholic church, Mm -hmm. typical suburban church, while teaching Anglican youth about, did they, their they make you a Eucharistic patrimony. minister? <laughs> 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 you, know? <laughs> you know, that's 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 really that's really an unfair question. No, oh, you can skip me, it. You can skip it. Go, go, <laughs> no, 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 they did not. I ran it as a joke. No, no, they didn't make me a Eucharistic minister. But unfortunately, I kind of became the poster boy where every homily. Where I was present, I somehow got pointed out and stood up in the middle of the homily to point out, look at this Protestant who's converting, which by the way, any priests who are listening, if you point out someone particular in your homily and ask them to stand up, there's a very special place in hell for you.
0: Oh, <laughs> I, well, I've often wondered about that too. I mean, we used to... You know, I go to the Melkite liturgy, and I, or if I'm not there, I'm at Latin mass. And if you look in older missals, but particularly when you look in the Byzantine one, there's still a point in the liturgy where the you know the deacon comes out and the catechumens depart. They're, you know, they're sent away from the church. And I guess I uh, God spared me a lot of things growing up that I got to see. But even the parish that uh, when I was where I went to elementary school, they had the Later, the guitar and the gym mass and stuff came. But sure. I, I can still remember faintly periods where the the catechumens were excused from mass, sure. which I, I guess some parishes abolished immediately. Others kind of hung on to that. And at least I saw some period in the late 70s when I was aware of these things where you'd see these people go and you'd wonder, like, why can't they stay?
1: Yeah, so that actually is what the parish that I attended did. They would excuse the catechumens, although catechumens was not the technical term. It wasn't people who were unbaptized. It was anyone who was going through RCIA. Yeah, it was literally anyone who was going through RCIA. And because I wasn't in the RCIA program, I didn't get up and leave. (laughs) So I sat there Mm -hmm. going going through the mass. Um, and I sat there with my girlfriend at the time who ended up becoming my wife because I, I was re- going to ask you when Jill came into the picture here. Yeah. yeah. So Jill came into the picture, um, my senior year of college. Uh, and at this point I knew I was going to become Catholic. Okay. She had grown up high church Lutheran. And so in some ways her kind of bridge into this was a lot easier because she had been baptized in a, as an infant and she thought baptism did something and she thought that there were sacraments and. She believed in a lot of the things that I didn't growing up. Mm-hmm. But at my senior year of college, I was going through this process um, and eventually made my, made my way into the actual RCIA process. And we did get up and leave, even though I had been baptized. Mm-hmm. We got up and went to this class that a leicized priest taught, along with a deacon and his wife. And I learned all sorts of wonderful things like, at some point in the future, everyone was going to be ordained to the different kind of states that they were in. And people who were divorced or married could totally receive the sacraments. And, you know, women priests were there from the beginning. And we're just going to find a way to find them again and bring them back into the church. Mm. And I have to, I have to say, I, I'm really thankful because at that point I knew enough to know that that wasn't okay mm-hmm. and to kind of rail against that. But that was my RCIA experience. My RCIA experience was... Miserable. I'm kind of surprised <laughs> they didn't tell you that you're a priest. Well, they they tried that too, okay. um, but I think they knew that that I wasn't buying it. And <laughs> one point of kind of contention was I had been I would kind of committed to going to mass every day during Lent in my move up to being confirmed, and the one day that I didn't go to the parish I was attending was Holy Thursday because I knew they would be washing the feet of women. Mm -hmm. And even then, not as a Catholic still kind of heading into the church, I knew that it wasn't right. And so I went to one of the other parishes in the area that didn't do that. And I, I don't want to say it was a threat, but it was definitely a suggestion that maybe I shouldn't be confirmed and maybe I should find another parish that I could become Catholic at. Wow. Wow. Yeah,
0: You're just not but I made it I mean, in. Don't I made it in. <laughs> I snuck
1: my way in, um, and God, because um, he either—I uh, know people say that God has a sense of humor. And I think it's a stupid thing to say, but I, I think rather that he gives us the things that we need to become saints. He forced me to go through that RCA process again with my wife. Um, because the year after I went through RCA and became Catholic, she decided she was going to go through RCA and become Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I sat through those same classes again. What, the same parish? Had the same, yeah, same parish. Had wait, the same wait, she, fights, so you could actually give her, the, the, the like, the quiz answers. Yeah, oh, it, well, <laughs> I wish it had been that easy. <laughs> if it had been that easy, I wouldn't have gotten into classes. We would have shown up on the day. Um, and finally we kind of sorted that out and uh, we were married in that parish Mm -hmm. and I ended up teaching at that parish. I became the director of new evangelization that parish a couple of years later. And it was funny because as I went through RCIA, I I told myself over and over again, man, if I ever do RCIA, I'm never going to do it this way, which was a stupid thing to say, because why would I ever run an RCIA program? And then a few years later, I'm running the RCIA program at that parish. And, Yeah, doing a little differently for sure.
0: You know, God has a funny sense of humor about some of that stuff because when I was in college, I used to drive uh, back uh, between Louisiana and Cincinnati, and midway through the drive, it'd be going through the middle of Alabama. And I'd just be tired because of the length of driving and everything else, but I used to just be like, oh my God. Gosh, Birmingham! Who lives here? It's just like
1: this, <laughs> it, this is terrible. This is a hole. I can't imagine anyone would live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So you know, it is yeah. funny how there's always something like that. That you know, for you it was a, uh, for you it was that. For me, it was that. I just yeah. I, yeah. No, I, so I, I
1: managed to, in some ways, sneak or eke my way into the Catholic Church. Um, we quickly found ourselves at one of the local parishes in the area that was. Um, you could say more believing or more practicing. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a parish that looked like a Catholic church, and they had the introit and sang the communion hymns and actually did the things that Catholics did. And that was also the parish that had the Latin Mass. And the reason I got connected with them was because even before I came Catholic, I started attending the Latin Mass there at that parish. That's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, thankfully, no God's... You know, divine grace. Our, our bishop at the time had asked the priestly fraternity of Saint Peter to come into this parish and offer a Latin mass at this parish. This is right after Sumor Pontificum yeah. had been um, had been promulgated, and so I was familiar with going to Latin mass and actually started serving the Latin mass fairly close after I had been confirmed. I basically was confirmed, became Catholic, and started serving the mass fairly fairly soon after that.
0: No, wait, wait, wait. Did you wear the white thing that you had from the Anglican church over there?
1: (laughs) It was definitely not the same getup. I I can tell you that. (laughs) And I was definitely never handling the the sacred species, so that was good. Um, But more importantly, it was something that I truly believed that I was the body and blood of Christ. And so more importantly than what I was wearing or what I was doing was the actions of the priest letting me know that this isn't just – bread or or a cup of wine, this was really, truly Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. You know, it's funny you say that because when I was a kid,
0: now I've got stories about being altar server as a kid, but the parents we served at still had a priest sacristy on one side and the server sacristy on the other, and you could sneak behind the high altar so that the congregation— Yeah, it
1: was the see. same sort of deal. I was yep.
0: scared to death to be in the sanctuary. I knew as a kid that that's God's place. Yeah, and you know I can remember they impressed on me, and this is even after they had switched to the new liturgy. You know, and I look back at it in hindsight, and I can see they were pushing that pastor out. It was the the that was Bernardin was the was the Archbishop of Cincinnati at the time, yeah. and uh, but you could see already kind of how the the machinery of Am Church works because. They started grinding on that pastor. But I can remember that pastor. He really did impress in my mind. You don't touch this chalice with your bare mm-hmm. hand. My hands yeah. were changed by my ordination. I can touch it. You, The only way you touch it, and he, he would show you how to pick a chalice up so that you're not touching the chalice itself. Yeah. And I watch and, you know, that's what blows my mind. I guess some of this stuff just changed right under my nose growing up. But, like, if I go to – I almost can't stand it because I get to – I feel bad for our Lord, that he's disrespected in ways that – these are people who say they're dedicated to our Lord, who, you know, they're they're the volunteers of the community. They come forth, and they even have little special ceremonies to honor these uh, so-called Eucharistic, but we're not allowed to call them that per Rome's order in 97, but these extraordinary ministers, and they're just like, they're handling it like they're doing dishes after a picnic.
1: Yeah. In fact, the, the phrase doing dishes is a common phrase that gets used among yeah. folks of those type. Well,
0: because at least in some of the parishes I saw in Cincinnati, they, they, they practically put our Lord in common dishes like glass bowls and these stoneware and weird stuff.
1: Yeah or or worse they pour him down the drain and he ends up in the sewer system.
0: Yeah. I can remember that 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 just was fascinating. Now I'm a kid and it was, was an old school parish old germ, built by Germans. There yeah. were two things that I always remember in there. Uh, well I would daydream when I was serving mass and I would always get stuff wrong. Because I, would, I didn't know, you know, I never graduated past holding the book, but I got a story about it when that happened. But, and holding the book for the priest was easy too, because he told me, he said, you come around and you, he said, you just hold the book up. I'm going to open it up. So, you know, you're seeing the back of the book, right? You don't know what he's right. reading or anything. He would open it up and I'm holding it. Need to think the priest is standing across from me and his arms are out because he's saying yeah. prayer. He said, yeah. "When I close my hands, think that means close the book." Right. And so I would like look, and I'd be watching his hands. And every once in a while, if he bless somebody, he'd have to he'd have to stop me from closing the book because because like, <laughs> I would see his hands going together. <laughs> yeah. I think I got to close the book.
1: <laughs> totally.
0: <laughs> the other thing uh, at it, this parish, it was St. Catherine's of Siena so in Cincinnati. They had these tiles, and it's kind of cool because. They had all these little designs, and I, I think it's what having artwork in the church is supposed to do. Is even though I was daydreaming, those seeing the statues and stuff like that, they still are things that lead your mind to God. But that church had these tiles that had, uh, and they were swastikas. Now they weren't in the same direction as a Nazi swastika; they were reversed. Right. But I always used to look at that and you know, when you get a little bit older, and of course everybody talks about the Nazis in Germany and stuff, I'd think, well, you know, those that the people at school are German and and there's swastikas in the floor and you start to wonder. Yeah. Um, that just I was kind of a strange diversion to talk about serving a mass, but that was something about that with I can remember being in the priest. We used to get trained in this stuff. And I can remember seeing and having explained this sink over here is for hands and washing things. And it goes to yeah. a sewer. This sink yeah. over here, it goes into the ground. And for if something things. happens, the holy stuff goes here. And it's that our Lord and the things serving our Lord don't wind up in the sewer.
1: Yeah. And in, in a funny way, I've kind of repurposed that in the sense that I, I bought a house and my house, the backyard, has become the place for burning and burying sacred things. Mm. It, it's, it's the spot where priests in the area know if you need something that needs to be burned or needs to be buried, there's a innumerable number of glass chalices that are broken and buried in my backyard. And <laughs> I can't tell you the number of old sacramentaries and old vestments. And when I say old, I mean 1970s vestments. I don't mean old like 1920s oh, wait, vestments. Wait, wait. That the have ones burned that have in in like felt backyard. banner stuff on them. Yeah. I mean, it's the stuff that <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's the stuff that for some reason doesn't burn quite as well as the wood that I'm putting on it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's good that those things are, are, you know, that's the shame, too, because they're they're things that were never of the dignity to be put in the service of our Lord to begin with. Yeah. But since they happen, they have to be treated as such.
1: Yeah, exactly. Once the precious blood touches a chalice, even the glass chalice, it needs to be treated a certain way. Oh, yeah. And once a vestment is worn at mass, even if it's the ugliest, most disgusting vestment, it needs to be treated a certain way. Mm -hmm. And so... I've kind of found a way to to fix that and <laughs> make a place for those things to have a home.
0: Well, and it's nice to hear that there's a, there's people availing themselves of it because that means that those things are disappearing, which those are the things that ought to disappear. Uh, as yeah, and,
1: to, and some of it is because the priest wants it, some of it's because faithful laypeople want it, and sometimes it's a little bit by hook and crook, but it's happening.
0: Yeah. Now, I guess we, you know, we, uh, so difficult Pontificorum, we're supposed to, you know, because of the anniversary, everybody's talking about that lately. But yeah, I I, had I to thank God because on my own story, you know, even though I was born in the 70s and, and Vatican II was well underway and Amchurch was moving along, I got to thank God because I got to go to Latin Mass at a place where nobody ever stopped. yeah. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the thing. When everybody's talking about Summorum Pontificorum and, and, and these other things, you know, when Benedict brings it up, Benedict remembers what Latin Mass was like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: My my pastor, you know, maybe I'll get him on one of these podcasts to interview him, but my pastor at my Melchizedek church, he's, he grew up uh, Roman Rite, he's Polish. He had a great analogy for it. He said, I don't understand why the church put that in the attic. Yeah he said, now what's going on is people go up in the attic and they see this really beautiful thing. It's like they're up there and they find, you know, great grandma's secretary desk. Yeah. And they're like, oh, wow. But they don't know what a secretary desk is for. Right. (laughs) And, you know, that's kind of his impression of when he sees some of the Latin mass stuff go on. He's like, these people, they know it's beautiful, but they really don't know how to experience it and it's something that's been removed out of practice
1: yeah and, and in two ways first of all i'm really thankful that i became a catholic uh right after summorum pontificum was promulgated and so i an keep saying pontificorum about latin mass. <laughs> <laughs> but on another sense uh, that that was me i when i first went to latin mass when i and even when i was serving the latin mass i mm. didn't have a clue i, I had no idea but I was attracted to the beauty and the reality that there was something there that was deeper and greater than what I was experiencing at a typical suburban church. And the only words I could put to it at that time was, this is the mass that realizes all the philosophy that I've been learning for the past four years. I spent wow. four years studying philosophy, and I, I came to a mass that actually made that real, actually mm-hmm. made that present to me. And those were the only words I could use at that point to describe it because I, I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. I didn't have any way of engaging it. But thankfully, my, my Catholic journey has brought to a place where that's that's no longer the case.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: So one of the things I like is that uh, even though you're a convert, and, and and some I think some converts they come in and they they have this shiny syndrome that everything's peachy keen and there's no problems in the church but I but I love it because you recognize uh, uh, humans comprise the church and you're not overly scandalized by the, the difficulties of our church today
1: and, yeah and I think every convert goes through this point where they have to grapple with that. Yeah. And they either grapple with it and come to the realization that the church is who she says she is, or they freak out and leave. Mm-hmm. And I mean that both on the conservative and the quote unquote liberal side. I think. Converts tend to come to the church and bring their own baggage with them and their own anticipations, and their expectations with them. Oh well, and at some point they just do it in a different either, way than Catholics. I think every Catholic, right.
0: even if they're born Catholic, we bring our own baggage in too. So
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they they either accept it or or they fall off for one of a couple of different reasons, and they end up either at a local Episcopal parish or they end up at the local schismatic parish and neither of those ends up fulfilling what what our lord intended what we really need to attach to which is that the fullness of the catholic faith is found in union with our holy father
0: i don't know if it if it's so big up there but i i see some you know there's a there's a schismatic and then there's several levels of the schismatic in cincinnati you also has the state of a contest but you know and that stuff came when i was older that stuff didn't exist until yeah. i was in high school uh, sure, but I, I, I do see, and it's kind of strange to me. I see some people, it's not so much in uh, uh, in Cincinnati, but I do see some some Catholics. I think they they recognize something going on with the schismatic Latin groups and the, the state of a contest, and I've been seeing some jump over to the Orthodox. Not strange to me too. Yeah. That, and that I makes can no understand me being enticed by the Eastern liturgy I mean it's where I go but I am half Greek I mean you know it's something the other half's polish so I kind of have oriental leanings from by birth but
1: sure and my, my experience has been especially when I converted I had so yeah you know, one of the one, one of the kind of pieces is if you come up in the philosophy department at, at weed College. There, there is a large number of people that end up going Catholic or Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And what I never understood was the people who were looking to solve the problems of Protestantism by going to Orthodoxy, because right. the Orthodox Church doesn't solve any of those problems. Well, and it's it like, like there's, there's an Orthodox, Orthodox Church History.
0: that started down here in Birmingham. It's it's gone. But I thought the priest had to spend – I thought it was terrible because you would need a flow chart to chart out all of these bishops by which this guy claims to have actually succession. And I thought, this is what I see Sade doing.
1: Yep. And the reality is a lot of these guys, Mm -hmm. a lot of these people get attached to this Mm -hmm. because what they really want is they want Protestantism with – Liturgy. They want Protestantism that has some uh, some of the trappings of Catholicism. That's really what they're looking for, and that's what they end up with. They end well, up with there's two things
0: that the Orthodox Church can deliver in spades. They can deliver liturgy, and they can deliver uh, da- daily prayers and chants. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's, the di- that's one difference. I have to praise the Roman rite for this, is that they figured out how to make a breviary. You know, if you do the oh, yeah. hours of the day in the Eastern Church, you, you've got to be a monk. There's no way you could pray a
1: monk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even the old rite prayers, a regular person can do in the Roman rite. Yeah. That's a, there was, a, you know, I, I forget,
0: was Pope Gregory that came up with the bravery? Whoever put that together, it was one of the popes that eventually, it might have been Gregory that, 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 that solidified it or one of the Gregories. I don't know. That's something we'll have to look up. But
1: Well, you want a funny story about that? Mm. So during the time of uh, right after Pius V, when the mass, the, the traditional mass had been kind of codified in the West, mm-hmm. um, there was a move towards dumbing down the liturgy of the hours in the West. Mm-hmm. And so there's this fascinating character. His name is Cardinal Keonez. And what Cardinal Tionis comes up with is this dumbed down, pared down, cut out liturgy of the hours that doesn't really have anything meaningfully Catholic in it. Um, it it's it's pretty bare. It's pretty sparse. Um, it it looks like probably what we do today. There's there's not a whole lot to it. But what's interesting is there's a really fascinating story about Saint Francis Xavier. He's ah, about to go to the West Indies. One of my favorites. Yeah, he's about to travel to the West Indies to live among the slaves who are working the fields in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. And his bishop gives him permission to pray this dumbed down, cut down Cardinal Quixote's litur- uh, Liturgy of the Hours, the breviary. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, my my attachment is to... The true breviary, my my attachment is to the true divine office, and he refuses to pray it. What ends up happening is, not as a result of this, but just kind of concurrent with this, the church decides, yeah, maybe the Kejones breviary isn't the best idea, and they don't end up adopting it. Yeah. But I think it's the example of the saints that show us, hey, this isn't the way to go. You have the permission. You you have – you can – without any sin, say this really cut down, pared down version of the divine office. But St. Francis Xavier understood that the divine office was his lifeline and that he needed that in order to be a practicing Catholic priest. And so he continued to say the old divine office Mm -hmm. and it really served him in his, in his endeavors. But there's, I, you know, one way I, I, I just love so
0: many things about it because, like, okay, drops his crucifix, and uh, you know, Harley misses a. Bee. I wish we could, you know, I realize necromancy and things like that are prohibited, but I really wish that, like, we could, we could bring him back, and because I would love to ask him, like, did you? Th- think to ask the sea crabs or did you know that the the sea animals would bring your crucifix to you or like how did that (laughs)
1: totally i mean
0: some of those stories you listen to it it's like they make sense to us now like well yeah he needed his crucifix to do his job but then you think about it it's like well how did that play out when that was going on
1: well and and you know it's funny because protestants are also attaching themselves to some of these great catholic saints like like uh St. Francis Xavier and some Mm -hmm. of these others, Cyril Methodius, these other great saints that have gone into these places and delivered the gospel in places that it didn't exist before.
0: Yeah. Well, at some point they have to, I, I wondered how long that would take. At some point they would have to realize, hey, these guys had it figured out how you evangelize and they really were bringing the gospel to these people. Yeah. And they did it well. Yeah. Now, when 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 uh, Friar Anthony and we're talking uh, last episode, we got into the story about we're going to talk about this more in the future, but we got into Francis Xavier and Maximilian Colby, and yeah. uh, how they both how they both got into Japan. Yes, and I told him I said you know it's funny to me because when you look at the the last century, and this is kind of we're going to talk about Fatima in, in an upcoming uh, episode because we want to talk about the. We got into some other stuff, but one of the comments I made in that, and he thought that was interesting, was you look at Our Lady, and if you think of the the message of Fatima and the things that happened in the last century, and you look at the attack on Europe, here's Our Lady, and she decided she was going to flank Europe. On one end of Europe, she comes in with uh, Colby. On the other end of Europe, she comes yeah. in with with Fatima.
1: Oh, yeah. If it was and like, Our Lady of Akita
0: as well. Wait, well, well, wait, wait. Akita comes, what, in 1971. So that's yeah. before Akita ever came. You've got Colby then. Now, I didn't explain it in that episode, but we should talk about it now. If you think about Poland, you know, everybody thinks John Sobieski held off the, the Turks and other things, right? Well, where's the other end of the Turkic Belt? It runs all the way across Asia up to the coastline yeah. at Japan. So, so you have got Colby. Colby then finishes the flank for our lady because he wouldn't think with his Polish lineage, she knew what she was doing. She takes a pole to to flank both sides of the Turkic belt with Hiroshima and with in Poland. And I'm like, you know, they. This is there is a, he was right. She's the commander of an army. Oh, yeah. If you lay this stuff out on, like, if we're playing Risk and you looked at these moves, they're, like, brilliant military moves.
1: So there's a there's an amazing story about a Japanese rebellion. I don't know if, if you're familiar with it. It's the the re- Rebellion of Shimabara. Mm. When did this, it happen? Uh, it's, like, I think it's in the 17th century. Okay. But it's it's this rebellion of Japanese peasants mm-hmm. against their shogun, and it becomes the quote unquote Catholic rebellion.
0: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And if you if you go and Google the Shimabara Rebellion, there are these beautiful images of the Eucharist, beautiful images of the Corpus Christi as banners that they used to push their rebellion. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was their shogun had treated them very poorly and to the point that they weren't able to sustain themselves on their land because they were being taxed so highly that they couldn't survive anymore. And this rebellion starts up with peasants and ronin, right? These samurai that didn't have masters anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's this incredible kind of nexus of... Catholics coming together and recognizing we need to do something. We need, we need to help out this situation. Yeah. And, and the Shimbari rebellion in in some ways is kind of the precursor to all of this. that's happening with both Fatima and our lady of Akita, because what it does is it, it establishes this, this point where Catholics in the area say, this is how we're going to live. This is, this is what we cannot take any longer. Um, and the, the, the beautiful banners that they produce as a result of this uh. are, are a testament to their Catholicity. They're a testament to the reality that they understood that Catholicism was the driving force behind them understanding that we have to provide for our families and we have to continue to survive and we can't continue this way any longer.
0: Well, it's something else because right across the, the right across the ocean there in Peking uh, and I didn't know about this until I, I had a spot in my dining room in my house and I I kept looking at the spot and I told our lady I said, You know, I'd like a picture of you there. And uh, some other time I'll talk about how I came across the icon of Our Lady of Vladimir that I have, but it was almost the same kind of story. And I wasn't expecting to for this to happen, but I just said, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what image you'd like of you there. And, of course, our Blessed Mother, she's always more generous than. It was a little while later, and it was by chance that somebody's asking me, um, nobody wants this. Do you want it? And it's an image of our, of our blessed mother. And she's clearly Chinese in the image and, and our Lord looks Chinese in it. And she's wearing yeah. an imperial garb and she's sitting on a, on a throne. What would be a Chinese throne? You can tell it's from the imperial palace. I look on the back, it's Chinese and you know, okay. The, I'm not fluent in Chinese and particularly not with the, with the, with the characters. So start looking, I start looking and at least part of it, And I had a friend help me for it. Turns out that the the image in the back that was printed on it is the name of it. It's Our Lady of Peking, Empress of China. Yeah. The handwritten Chinese that was on the back was Cardinal Zen's signature where he had blessed it. Wow. So I'm hearing all this, and I'm like, i got to find out who Our Lady of Peking is. Yeah. So I start looking her up. Well, this is from the cathedral in Peking. And that was because it was consecrated to Our Lady and she was made Empress of China during the Boxer Rebellion. I think it's amazing. There's fighting going on, fighting going on, three days of shooting outside, people taking refuge in the cathedral in front of this image of Our Lady. Three days they were in there and I don't know, you know, I've seen a couple of movies that depict that period, but I don't know what it would be like if uh, you're outside and there's just constant shooting going on. You'd be thinking for three days, when are they coming in? Because we don't have a gun. Well, on the third day, finally, the the gunshots uh, stopped. And I imagine the women's minds had to be going somewhere else because terrible things were done to women during that uh, rebellion and uh, be common with warfare and stuff that was happening. When come the soldiers? People are there in front of the blessed mother. They had to be thinking, well, here they are. They're finally here. The soldiers saw the image of the blessed mother and fell on the ground. And they said, there she is. said, what do you mean? She and her army have been on the roof of this church for the past three days, keeping us away. And I'm like, wow, wow, And that's who wants to be in my dining room.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny that our lady decides that she's going to reveal herself. She's going to connect herself with these cultures that have such a high, hierarchical, imperialistic mentality. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and that image—if you think about it—in in either Japanese or Chinese culture, if you, they see her as the, the the mother of the emperor, they understand right away. They don't need it explained to them that she's queen of heaven. Yeah. To get it, I don't. You know, and I—I I, I guess that's funny. Look, here we are, and it's good that we 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 wound up on the blessed mother and a good story about her. I, uh, I hope with all these episodes that, that our listeners are like, oh, I wish they'd talk more about this or talk more about that. Landon brought up a couple things, and I'm going to hold them to it. If you would like to know more about the Shimmy Bar Rebellion, uh, I'm going to make Landon send me a link that we're going to put on the post on the website and the show links. Um, so be sure to check that out. And uh, with that, uh, Landon, would you like to take us out with a prayer? Yeah,
1: let's finish with a uh, glory be. Awesome. Gloria Patriot Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sigur Deir et Nucca et Semper. et in secolorum.
0: Amen. You know, I like the secolo, secolorum as opposed to the forever and ever because I like thinking ages of ages.
1: Yeah, it, it makes a
0: whole lot more sense when it's in Latin. one of these days. You now, maybe in a future one, I'll tell you about You know, we have all these problems with translation that have gone on in the the Roman church, but you never would know that one of the larger scandals in the Byzantine church is whether the glory be used in the liturgy should be rendered with forever and ever or ages of ages. (laughs) <laughs> and it they all has to do with thing. the Greeks say ages of ages. So that must be Orthodox. So. <laughs> 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 it's funny how some of these these fights that come out translate in other
1: ways. So, well, so you know, I, I can make this joke because my grandmother was uh, Armenian and she grew up in Athens mm-hmm. during World War Two. And so she pulled in some of the Greek kind of culture at the time. But I have to say there's a sense of propriety of this is the way things have to be uh-huh. in, in Greek culture that I, I've never seen anywhere else. And I've seen it mirrored in Armenians that came from the genocide over to the United States through Greece and kind of picked up some of that.
0: Hmm. Wow. It's in my blood. I can understand it. Some people call it OCD. I say, no, it's just the way things ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, everybody, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Bellarmine Forum podcast. We look forward to having these episodes available to you all together. Uh, visit the website for links to all subscribe on iTunes. And since these are the opening ones, we've put several episodes for you to binge listen to. If you like them, if you're looking forward to hearing more, uh, with the link on the on the website on the page where you found this, go subscribe on iTunes. If you've already subscribed on iTunes, be sure to go in and give us a rating. Uh, and this is to help us because uh, what will happen is Apple will put us in a new and noteworthy if enough people rate it, which promotes it and uh, basically results in free advertising and helps extend the show to more people. Uh, we thank you for listening. Please remember this episode, of course, is underwritten by an anonymous donor. If you would like to be mentioned as a, a sponsor, a donor to supports the production of the podcast, get in touch with me uh, through the contact link on the website or with John D. Jack or Cindy Paslavsky uh, or give us a call at the phone number on the website and just say, hey, I like this. I want to support it. I'd like to donate. Uh, as always, we thank, uh, thank our Lord and our Lady for making all of this possible, and we thank you, our supporters, for donating to the Bellarmine Forum. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Bellarmine Forum Podcast, Episode 3, with Landon De Pasquale and John B. Manos, your show host. This podcast is a production of the Bellarmine Forum, formerly known as the Wanderer Forum Foundation which was founded in 1965 on the heels of Vatican II as a faithful enclave of the Catholic faith, without all of the progressive or modernist confusion that was rushed into the church at that time. We still, to this day, are part of the battle to defend the Catholic faith and bring you faithful, reliable Catholic teaching. Our producer sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Our executive director made all things visible and invisible, our technical director is an unnamed angel assigned to us by the producer per show. The Bellerman Forum is a nonprofit public charity, and all donations are tax deductible to the maximum extent permitted by law. Whew. Yeah, that was supposed to be funny. This show is copyrighted by the Bellerman Forum 2017 to the greater glory of God and the honor of His Blessed Mother.